Fanny Crosby was born in 1820. For a little over six weeks, she enjoyed her sight until a doctor mistreated an eye infection and she became permanently blind. I think that growing up blind couldn't have been easy. Fanny seemed to thrive. By the time she was 10, she could recite by memory the first four books of the Old Testament and the four Gospels. At the age of 15, while studying at the Institute for the Blind in New York, she discovered that she was a great student in almost everything, everything that is except math. There she would write, I owe a poor, it makes me sick to hear the word arithmetic. Words that I resonate every time one of my teens asks for me to help with their high school math, and I try to remember that math from years ago. While at the Institute, Fanny, she, she would become a poet, and in time would pour her life out in writing songs. Donald Hustad, a recognized authority on hymnology, has called Fanny Crosby the most prolific and significant writer of gospel songs in American history. She wrote more than 8,000 of them. Most have been forgotten, but among them were to God be the glory, blessed assurance, praise Him, praise Him, redeemed and rescue the perishing. Even today, Hope Publishing Company has hundreds of her poems in their files just waiting to be set to music. Fanny once said, I never undertake a hymn without first asking the good Lord to be my inspiration in the work I'm about to do. The idea is they would come to her. She would write the songs in her mind and commit them to memory. At times, she'd have as many as 40 different songs stored in her mind. She'd let each song linger there for a few days before dictating them to a friend. She said she felt that her blindness was God's gift to her so that she could write songs for his glory. I could not have written thousands of hymns, she said, if I had been hindered by the distractions of seeing all the interesting and beautiful objects that would have been presented to my notice. God used Fanny immensely. In fact, it's hard to find someone who has had as great an influence on the church in the last 200 years as her. Or consider Amy Carmichael, born in 1867. Amy, she had a heart for the disenfranchised, a letter to minister to the girls that were working in the mills in Ireland. That is, until God called her into, into ministry as a missionary. God would eventually lead her to India. And there, when she learned how parents often sold their daughters to different gods, turning their precious girls into temple prostitutes, she declared outright war. She prayed, she risked her life, she faced imprisonment and arrest to snatch these young ladies and protect them. In time, she expanded her ministry to care for the boys that were sold to the temple gods as well. In her confession of love, a document she wrote for some Indian girls who had banded together to serve Christ, she wrote, My vow, whatsoever thou sayest unto me, by thy grace I will do it. My constraint, to love, O Christ my Lord. My joy, to do thy will, O God. My prayer, conform my will to thine. My motto, love to live, live to love. Even after a serious fall when she was 64 that left her bound to her room, she continued to guide her ministry and went on to write another 13 books. In all, she wrote 35 books. Amy impacted the face of modern missions like few others had. Or take one of my personal heroes, Margaret Baxter, the husband of Richard. The Baxters, they lived in England during a difficult time to minister. Richard was tactless and possibly grumpy, Margaret was determined and active. She pushed Richard to become more and confronted him when he, needed it to, when he needed that. Margaret was a woman of means, and so at one point she found a place for him to hold church services and used her wealth to even hire another minister to help him. 
During one of his preaching times, a crack developed in the main beam supporting the floor. The 800 or so people that were there instantly made for the door, but Richard chastised them into staying and kept preaching. Meanwhile, it was Margaret who went and found a carpenter, and together with the carpenter, braced the floor while Richard preached upstairs. The next day, she paid for the place and set out to find a safer place for him. In time, she would even choose to go to prison with him when he went to prison for preaching the gospel. They say behind every successful man lies a great woman, and her greatness allowed him to shine and make a lasting impact on the role of modern-day pastors. These three ladies, and countless more, have shaped the course of Christianity, leaving their mark on worship, pastoral ministry, charity, and mission. In fact, so much so that their impact, it's difficult to measure. For some, we don't even remember the name of their husband. Well, I believe that God wants to raise up a group of women like them today to change the world once again and help, them build the king, and help him build the kingdom. And so today I'm going to talk about women in ministry. Because of that, and, and because the elders of the, of the church have instructed me to today. You see, this is not a topic I would often pick. It's just that almost all of you are going to disagree with something I say in the next couple minutes. In fact, I've joked that I'll need to find witness protection for a few weeks starting at 11 o'clock today. After all, while I've been at FBC for only a few years, in my time, I've had at least one family leave because I support having a female worship leader on the stage, and I've had another leave because I've told them I refuse to support a female elder. And I know that there's others that agree, and others that fall somewhere in the spectrum between the two. Sadly, as Christians, we've wasted more time on this issue. We've assembled more committees to discuss it than almost everything else. It has been discussed in every Bible school, every youth group, and every church at some point. And believers are entrenched in their views on both sides. So what is it? What role do women play in the kingdom? What role do they play in the church? And how do we know? Well, hopefully today we'll start to answer that. So notice first, Women are far more important than Christians have often given them credit for. Women are far more important than Christians have often given them credit for. After all, the Bible highlights the importance of women. In fact, so much so it's hard not to miss. In the Old Testament, it's riddled with women worthy of respect who did great things for God. Whether that was the courage of Deborah or Sarah or the faith of Rahab, or the commitment of Hannah, the devotion of Ruth, the humble faith of both the widow of Zarephath and the Shulamite woman, or, or the risk-taking faith of Esther. And those just scratch the surface. Each reference highlights their importance, giving them prominence that far outstrips how they were seen in their time and making them into role models that we should follow. And that trend, it doesn't stop when you come to the New Testament. Now instead, the Gospels tell us that Jesus openly spoke with women despite the fact the culture of the time discouraged men from speaking with women in public. That Jesus, he, he treated women with dignity and respect. In fact, the very first person he disclosed he was the Messiah to was the woman at the well. Even Jesus' teaching were favorable to women. Jesus, he often used women as examples. and In his analogy, he often used household activities common to women at the time, like sewing and cooking. At one point, he compared the kingdom of heaven to leaven put in dough by a woman. At another, his return to ten virgins waiting for a bridegroom. And at a third, God's care for the lost to a woman searching for a lost coin. Jesus, he commended the poor widow who gave all she owned, saying it was more sacrificial, worth more than those who gave lavish gifts out of their means. 
and a culture that prohibited women from studying and learning the Torah, Jesus would not only teach Mary, but praised her for listening to him. And when her sister complained that she wasn't helping her in the kitchen, Jesus didn't send her back to the kitchen or imply that that is where she belonged. Jesus, he praised the Canaanite woman for, the, for her great faith, as he did the restored prostitute. He called a healed woman a daughter of Abraham, just as he called a tax collector a son of Abraham. Jesus' ministry had even been partly financed by women who were likely traveling with him, at least during some of his time of ministry. And when Jesus left and returned to heaven, the church it continued to see women as important. At Pentecost, Peter, quoting the book of Joel, said that God would pour out his spirit on both men and women, and they would both prophesy. In other words, it was an equal opportunity event. The New Testament is clear that both men and women are saved the same way, they're baptized the same way, and are equally valuable to God. Each and every person having a place in his kingdom and his church. Sadly, we as a church, historically, thinking globally as a church, have often mistreated women and treated them far more chauvinistically than that. History is full of examples from Tertullian, the prolific early church writer who penned to women this, Do you not know that you are an Eve? The sense of God on the sex of yours lives in this age. The guilt must of necessity live too. You are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first destroyer of the divine law. You are she who persuaded whom, him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image man. On account of your desert, that is death, even the Son of God had to die. Not surprising, Tertullian still found someone who would marry him. But he was far from the only one. Take Augustine, the, the one who, who penned the city of God, who, who wrote, If it were not the case that woman was created to be man's helper specifically for the production of children, then why would she have been created as a helper? Was it so that she might work the land with him? No, because there did not yet exist any such labor for which he needed a helper. And even if such work had been required, a male would have made a better assistant. One can also posit that the reason for her creation as a helper had to do with the companionship she could provide for the man if perhaps he got bored with his solitude. Yet for company and conversation, how much more agreeable it is for two male friends to dwell together than for a man and a woman. He writes, I cannot think of any reason for women's being made as man's helper if we dismiss the reason of procreation. Not surprising, Augustine never married. Either way, these men and countless more have somehow missed how important a role women played in Scripture and play today. They spoke out of turn and they missed the boat, no doubt allowing their culture to speak more than the Bible. So let me say to every woman out there, they were wrong and their words are hurtful and I'm sorry. So beyond that, even when we've had a view as men, often we've been terrible in how we've expressed them. Not many years ago, Ann Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter, was invited and paid to speak at a Southern Baptist pastor's conference. Many Southern Baptist preachers have been taught women should never preach, yet they invited her to come and speak anyways. And so as she got up and spoke, many turned, physically turned their backs to her in the middle of her sermon. These were pastors who had signed up for that conference knowing she was a speaker. They had paid their fees, they had traveled there, and had decided to protest against her. And Graham Lotz would preach to their backs. Regardless of your perspective, it's hard for me to see the love of Christ in that. Truthfully, even during my time here, I found myself having to 
I found myself at a couple times having to apologize to women who've expressed years ago being told by men in this congregation that they needed to stop talking and, and voicing their opinion and go back to the nursery or the kitchen. So for every time we have men have failed to show God's love by our poor treatment, I'm truly sorry. But you need to know that while Christian men have some reason to be ashamed of the way we have together treated women, ways that don't line up with Scripture, let me be clear, I nor anyone else has any reason to be ashamed of what God has said in His Word on the topic. And sadly, when we come to this topic, we tend to start with our own position or the position of our church and take our assumptions to the Bible, to the text, ramming our views into the Bible, making it support what we want it to say. But we don't want to do that today. That is what men like Augustine did. And say we want to start with the Bible and see what it says. After all, it truly doesn't matter what I want it to say. I want to know what God wants it to say. It is His Word, and I am not God. We want to hear from Him. Sure, at times we need to figure out what was cultural and what was not, what was descriptive of what was happening or what had happened, and not prescriptive of what should always happen. But our goal is to let the Bible speak. Dear friends, make no mistake, when we mold the Bible to our time, disregard Scripture because times have changed or change how we interpret it because our society thinks differently, we do nothing but water down the truth, cloud God's will, and are in danger of defaming Him and His Word. Having said that, there are three passages that I want to look at today that I think will help us to further understand the role women play. Three passages that not only need us to our next three points, but you need to know our landmines. Up front, I could probably preach on each of these passages for several weeks. Today, you're getting the Coles Notes version. If you have questions about other things in these passages, please come speak with me. Well, the first passage we want to look at, it teaches us that in the first century church, women had a prominent role in corporate worship. In other words, not only are women more important than what we often give them credit for, but the Bible has given women far more opportunity and liberty to serve than we've often allowed. The Bible has given women far more opportunity and liberty to serve than many churches do. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 with me. Paul writes this, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with their head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have cut her hair off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of a man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. And sometimes when we come to this passage, we quickly dismiss what's going on. We get hung up on the headdress issue. It's just so foreign to us. Some, they even see this as oppressive and demeaning. What's more, it seems pointless today, a non-issue, and so we dismiss it and ignore it. And yet when we do, we miss what Paul is saying as he writes, every woman who prays or prophesies in public must have a head covering. It's interesting when you stop and look at that. I mean, given the churches I grew up in, where a woman wouldn't be praying or prophesying in a church service, for Paul here to write as matter-of-fact as he could that they were is shocking. These women were leading in prayer. 
They were delivering messages from the Lord. They were prophesying. Something that some could argue included preaching. Somehow in our aversion to head covering and the limitation of it, we often miss the freedom that women were, were not only exercising, but Paul was implicitly condoning. After all, don't you think that Paul wouldn't have bothered to explain in such detail how women should handle their hair when they do if he thought they shouldn't be speaking at all? No one said he would have outright condemned it. In other words, the very fact he takes time here indicates the problem wasn't that he had wasn't with their speaking, but in, instead with the manner in which it was being carried out. And if nothing else, that was a radical change for his time. After all, in the Jewish synagogues of the time, women were not considered full members. They were required to sit behind a veil. So this equality would have been scandalous and unheard of. A challenge to the culture of the time that saw women as last and went against the traditional religious bent of the Jews. And sadly, that would still be true today as it gives women far more license and freedom than they have been granted in many churches. Now, at this point, every feminist wants to get up and cheer. But don't get so excited, because the same feminists will want to sit down quickly when we look at the rest of the passage. You see, it's just that it seems that some of these women in Corinth were taking their newfound freedom too far and ignoring some common cultural practices of the time. They were not covering their head during worship. For us, this seems insignificant. But in that culture, it implied that they were available. It discredited their husbands and brought shame to them. Truthfully, whether it was rebellious or not against her husband in their heart, it certainly symbolized that to those around. And so Paul takes time to give them instructions on covering their head. And today, we believe, like most churches, that his commands were culturally driven. And so we don't require women to cover their heads. But while the command is cultural, the principle behind the command isn't. The principle of a woman being under the authority of a man. How do I know? Because Paul here, he doesn't root this need for submission to authority to how the, those in Corinth would see it or, or under the guise of being all things to all people or like some of our missionaries in the Middle East who wear face coverings not to offend. No, instead Paul, he roots it in the Godhead itself. He roots it in the Trinity, saying that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Sure, they, some come to that statement and conclude that that word for had, that it must not mean authority, it must mean source. And the word can mean that, and it's true that man is the source of woman. Eve was literally made out of Adam's rib, but that isn't what this passage is saying. After all, God the Father is not the source of Christ. He wasn't made out of him. Instead, the context is clear that had means authority, that God the Father has the authority over Christ. Besides, that's what we see in the Gospels. Whether we look at John 6 and read Jesus tell us that he, he came to do the will of him who sent him the Father or look at the words of Jesus in the garden the night before he's crucified as he's prayed to the Father, not my will, but thy will be done, your will be done. God the Father commands and sends, the Son obeys and goes. Now I know in our mind when we hear that, we tend to think of a ranking, concluding that since God the Father's in charge, he's more important, Jesus is just the second in command. But God the Father's authority doesn't for a second imply that he's superior. Christ is in no way inferior to God the Father. They are equal. And yet the Son joyfully chooses to submit himself to the Father. Paul, by putting them together here, he's telling us the same principle applies to husbands and wives. Well, the husband is that had the authority. They are both equal. You see, it's just that in the kingdom culture, importance isn't attached to position or authority. Worth isn't connected to a role. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that is something that while I understand it, I, I find it hard to get my head around it. After all, if someone were to ask me who is more important, the, the president of the United States or the person from the mailroom who delivers his, his mail, the answer would seem quite clear to me, as it does when we talk about a doctor versus a Walmart greeter. The one with more authority is more important. I think back to philosophy class and the questions of ethics and moral were asked, like, if you had to kick someone out of a lifeboat so that everyone else would survive, how would you determine who to kick out? Was a doctor more important than someone with a disability? Of course, we cry no, but there is a tension there because we tend to attach importance to what someone can do to, to position and role. And so it's no surprise that when we come to the church that we tend to see pastors as more important, more important than worth more than elders. Elders is more important than deacons, and deacons is more important than those who sit in the pews. It just seems to make sense to us, and yet nothing could be further from how God sees things. Take the parable of the talents. The story Jesus told about three servants who were entrusted with money to invest money while their, while their master had gone away. One, he gives five talents to, another two, and a third one. When the king gets back, the first two servants were faithful. The one with five talents presents ten to the king. The one with two presents four. Well, only the third hid his money and didn't invest it. Jesus is telling us that we are to use, we are to invest all he gives us, given us to use it wisely. But did you ever notice that the one with ten and four received the same commendation? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The master looked at them the same way. Yet one had a greater role and greater responsibility and was given more. To God, they were both seen as the same, both as faithful. Or take 1 Corinthians 12, where we read this. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of, one, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If all were one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On those contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honors to the parts that lacked it. Lack it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. In other words, chief cook or bottle washer, pastor or custodian, elder or greeter, man or woman, we're all of equal value in the kingdom. Our worth, it isn't attached to what we do. Think of it this way. Think of it like a parent. I have a, a flock of kids, many kids. Someday one may be a, a lawyer or politician, another may be a missionary, a third might be a national athlete, another might be a mechanic. Perhaps another serves in McDonald's. As a parent, which one will be more important? They all will be important because they are my kids. Regardless what they do, no one will ever be more valuable to me than another. And that's how it is in the kingdom. Regardless what role you play, 
Dear friends, your worth, it doesn't come from your position. It simply comes from how God sees you. And if you know him, if you're a believer today, God, he sees you as his child, a joint heir with Christ. He's, the Bible, it tells us that you are a friend of Christ, sharing his inheritance, that you are God's temple, that his spirit is in you. It says you're a member of Christ's body, a new creation, united to Jesus that you are a saint, God's workmanship, his handiwork, a citizen of heaven, a member of God's family, a part of Christ's bride, his church, a living stone. You are chosen by God, holy and dearly loved, a member of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of God's own possession. That is your value and worth. Did you notice not once I said you were valued because of what you do or how much you have? or the greatness of your influence, or the position you hold. Not once did I mention what ministry role you fill. No, your value lies in how God sees you, and he sees you as his sons and daughters. It doesn't matter whether you're the chief cook or bottle washer. Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, by putting these comparisons together, is saying the same is true when it comes to women and men, that while the man is the head, the authority, they are equal and yet have different roles. In fact, since he roots it in the Trinity... It's a principle that transcends time, location, and culture. And but a few verses, God, he, he not only gives women license for ministry beyond what many traditionalists would want, allowing women to share a message from him in the assembly as long as they're under the authority of their husband and the elders, but also places some restrictions, something that the next two passages also do. You see, while women were given greater freedom than we commonly think, the Bible is also clear that since women are to be under authority, they cannot serve as elders, which is our next point. Women cannot serve, must not serve as elders. Now, I can hear someone say, wait a minute, Chad. What about Galatians 3? There, Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Doesn't that mean equal opportunity? Somehow missing that in the passage, the context of the passage, all Paul is saying is that we come to Jesus the same way. The Jew didn't cease to be a Jew when he was saved. The slave still was a slave. So it wasn't a statement of role or opportunity. It was simply a statement of salvation being open to all. It's far from a trump card that should negate all other scripture or cause us to write off any scripture that might say there's some differences as cultural. I said there's passages that point to different roles that we need to follow, two of which stand out. Verses found in 1 Corinthians 14. There, as Paul once again is talking about worship and order in the church, this time he's talking about, but this time he's talking about how to handle prophecy. He writes this For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husband at home, for it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in the church. I can hear someone think, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that Paul approved women prophesying and praying in public? Not three chapters before this. So how can Paul now be telling us women are to be silent? What's more, the, the way Paul says this here, it doesn't seem to be cultural, as it applies to all the congregations of the saints, making it not just for Corinth, but for everyone in every church. So how do those two go together? Actually, we don't fully know what was going on in Corinth. Some guess that the women were interrupting the worship service with questions, and Paul wasn't so much against women speaking, but against the interrupting. Others think that these women were passing judgment on prophecies that were being given. And given the context, I think that is more likely. See, back in verse 29, Paul had wrote, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. 
Sure, at one level, everyone needs to evaluate what's being said. But the reality is that ultimately the leadership of the church would have rendered verdicts on any disputes. And since the highest level of the church leadership was reserved for men, by speaking, these women were usurping. They were taking their place when they did. They were challenging their authority and by doing so, dishonoring their husbands. So Paul is telling them when the leaders are wearing carefully what is said, they should remain silent. Let the elders, of whom they're not a part, do their job. Ask your question elsewhere. One commentator wrote, if we understand verse 34 correctly, then verse 35 is understandable. Suppose that some woman in the church had wanted to evade the force of Paul's directive. The easy way to do this would be to say, well, we'll just do as Paul says. We won't speak up and criticize prophecies, but surely no one would mind if we asked a few questions. We just want to learn more about what these prophets are saying. Then such questions could be used as a platform for expressing in non-too-veiled form the very criticism Paul forbids. By their questions, they, could, they were questioning the elder's verdict. In other words, they weren't to assume the job of elder, those that were called to guard the doctrine of the church and evaluate the prophecies. But not only that, turn over with me to 1 Timothy 2. Here we have another passage that is addressing what should happen when God's people gather as a church. Listen to verse 11 of 1 Timothy 2. It reads this, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, being the father of five girls, I get how this passage reads. It's not one that I like to read to them. But before we get to the heart of it, don't miss what Paul starts out with here by saying that a woman should learn. Now today, we, we just take that for granted. Of course, they should learn. But it was far from an assumption when he wrote this. Instead of the Roman world, women were considered to be an intellectual second class. It was widely accepted that females were academically inferior at the time. They even designed their education system just for men. And the, Jews, the Jewish rabbis were even more chauvinistic. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, one of their law books, it writes this, it would be better for the words of the Torah, the words of the Bible, to be burned than they should be entrusted to a woman. That's just how much of a waste of time they thought educating women were. The Babylonian Talmud explains the differences between men and women in that in worship. It says men came to learn, women came to listen, to hear. But here Paul says, let them learn. A statement that went against the culture. Paul, he simply refused to cowtail to the culture when it came to what was right. Here Paul, he stipulates that, that during their worship, women should learn in full submission. That they must not teach or have authority over a man. Paul even tells us why, telling us they must not do so because Adam was made first. Paul, he grounds his reason for this in the creation. Paul, he doesn't use some local situation in Ephesus as a reason. He doesn't say the women in Ephesus, they're just not educated enough yet, so they need to be quiet. Or, or they're disruptive like the women in Corinth were, so they need to be quiet. No, instead he points back to the original time of creation before there was any sin in the world and sees that God had a purpose behind the order of his creation. John Stott once wrote, all attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship on the grounds that it is mistaken or confused or culturally bound or culture specific must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It is rooted in divine revelation, not in human opinion, and it and it's rooted in divine creation, not in human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be preserved as having permanent and universal authority. 
God, he could have created Adam and Eve at the same time, just as he had simultaneously created animals, both male and female, in one creative act. But he didn't do so. God first made Adam, and then declaring it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, supplied him with a helper suitable to his needs. From one of Adam's rib, he fashioned Eve to be Adam's wife. Here Paul says that in doing so, God made a distinction for all times, revealing his design and purpose for the sexes, showing that while both are equal before God, they've been given different roles. As first, the husband, he has the primary responsibility in his headship. Truthfully, it's something we see right from the start of the Bible. As while Eve sinned first, she was the first to eat the forbidden fruit, and you could say that sin entered the world through Eve, elsewhere we're told that sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Which is true because Adam was the one responsible for both of them. It's also why when God came to question them in the garden, in the book of Genesis, he spoke directly to Adam. Adam was the head. He had the authority. Well, here in 1 Timothy, Paul, he then goes on to mention that fall. Some may think that by Paul doing so in 1 Timothy, he's implying that a second reason why they need to be in submission, saying that women are less objective and more prone to be deceived. And while we could stereotype that men are generally more objective and tougher and less nurturing than women, who are generally more relational and caring than men, and, and speculate that that could cloud their judgment, that women tend towards enmeshment, and that can make them unwilling to see and condemn harsh truths in those they love, whereas men are more detached and rational, traits that might be necessary to root out heresy or guard doctrine or carry out discipline in the church. And there may be some truth to that. I don't think that's what he's saying here. It isn't that women are somehow disqualified because they're more prone to be deceived. After all, that's the case. Nothing he says here would somehow qualify Adam. I mean, any idea that Adam had greater wisdom is nothing but a joke. Not only were most of the problems in Ephesus where Timothy was at the time, not only were most of those problems being caused by false teachers that were men, but Paul implies here that Adam knew full well what he was doing when he ate the fruit. He willfully rebelled while Eve was deceived. How in the world does that make him better? I think that Paul is simply giving an example of when the authority lines were out of whack and, and God's design was distorted. In other words, the passage isn't about male superiority. Any honest man knows that the grading curve in school was always messed up by the girls in the class. We of men have been outthought, outtalked, and outdone by women. It's a statistical fact that American women read more Christian books than men and attend church in greater numbers. Women are more relationally orientated, more naturally empathetic, more natural communicators. And no doubt that's why some come to this, these passages and say, well, Paul, he must have been mistaken, that he must have been a chauvinist, limited by the attitude of his time, confined by a culture that wasn't ready for women. And because of that, we should throw out everything he says on the topic. But Paul wasn't shy, nor was Jesus. Jesus could have made half of the apostles women if he wanted to. Paul could have not included this passage or, or written it differently. Neither hesitated to do culturally unpopular things when they were morally right. And said this was about God-ordained order based in creation. Paul then he ends by remaining, reminding women that they'll be saved by childbirth. A verse that doesn't mean that women must bear a child in order to be saved. If Paul believed that, he wouldn't have encouraged some women to stay single. If He certainly would have told every woman then to get married and have a kid and do it fast because their eternity depend on it. No, instead, well, there's a couple ways to translate this, interpret it. I think what he's saying is that they will be saved by working out their salvation through their lives as they follow the calling of God 
has on them as a woman, and one of those calling often is having children. So the bottom line is this passage clearly states women are not to teach or usurp authority, exercise authority over men. So often, either confused or upset or pleased by that answer, once we come to that conclusion, we stop reading. But you need to remember that when Paul wrote this, there were no chapter divisions like we have today. Instead, Paul goes right on in 1 Timothy to talk about elders. Not only speaking of them being faithful husbands and specifying them as men, but also pointing out that the same two things he says that women are not to do are the two primary responsibilities of elders. That elders are to oversee and rule and that they are to teach. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence and neither should you. Paul put these together to say women are not to serve as elders because of the order of a creation established by God. Well, if that's the case, then male-only elders is really about faithfulness to God's Word and God's plan, even when we might not see it or disagree with it. It's about inviting God's Word to shape the life of the church rather than our culture. Still, don't get carried away. Don't read into it. That's all he says on the topic here. In fact, based on the rest of the New Testament, nothing could be clearer than that women can lead in various other ways under the authority of the elders. After all, throughout the New Testament, you see women teaching, helping, serving, equipping, and spreading the gospel. Truthfully, if women didn't serve in the church today, our ministries would grind to a halt. We need them and their leadership. John Piper has said, the fields of opportunity are endless for the entire church to be mobilized in ministry, male and female. Nobody is to be at home watching soaps and reruns while the world burns. God intends to equip and mobilize all the saints under the leadership of a company of qualified men who take primary responsibility for the leadership and teaching of the church. Well, one of the ways women can serve is as a deacon, which leads us to our final point. A woman can serve as a deacon, that they can serve as deacons. For some of you, this is a new idea. As we at FBC, as far as I know, I've never had a female deacon. We've never even talked about it. But you need to know that is because we've never had a male-only elders board. And so the deacons functioned as the governing board. So they were quasi-elders, the headship over the church. And since they exercised authority, something women are not to do, there was no grounds for considering a female deacon. But now we have an elders board that governs. What's more in the Bible, deacons were responsible for serving in the church, not for teaching and governing the church and protecting doctrine. In other words, while those roles disqualify them from elder, there are no requirements for deacons that excludes them. In fact, some think that the description of deacons in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, includes them when Paul writes, likewise women, or likewise their wives, your version may say, when he's describing the deacons. Regardless, when you realize the only restrictions involves the office of elders, it becomes clear that there's no other tasks or ministry they cannot or should not be involved in. But not only that, the Apostle Paul, he mentions a ton of women who were active in their faith, instrumental in the establishment of the church, whether that was Yodia and Syntyche, two women who were important enough that their differences were causing disunity in the church, or Priscilla, a church planner who worked alongside Paul and who with her husband tutored Apollos to be mighty in Scripture, or Janai, who was a co-worker known to the Apostles for her work. Mary, who worked very hard for the Romans, or Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who worked hard in the Lord, or Paul's dear friend, Persius. Also where Paul introduces to the messengers from Chloe's house and to Nymphia's house church. But the clearest evidence is when Paul commended Phoebe as a servant of the church of Centuria to the church in Rome, hoping they would support her. That word servant, 
That's in Romans 16 if you're looking for it. That word servant is literally a word for deacon. And by naming the church, Paul is clearly referring to it as a specific office. She was a deacon at that church. Certainly that's how the early church saw it. They thought that Paul was using technical language to inspire them to help her. So women, they can. They should serve as deacons under the authority of male eldership. In fact, I believe it's crucial to have gifted women in all other levels of leadership. So what are you to do with this sermon today? Well, perhaps God, he simply wants you to hear how he sees you. How you get your worth from him. It's just that you've been struggling, feeling insignificant and unworthy. And need to hear that as a believer, you are precious and valuable because of how he sees you. Or maybe you were listening and the more I spoke, the more you got upset because you just disagree. If so, take today as a challenge to dive deep into God's word and seek his truth. Make sure, making sure your traditions and culture aren't clouding your understanding of God's word. After all, God has something to say about his church and how it is to be ordered that he wants you to hear and accept. Besides, the elders at FBC intend to move ahead with women deacons under the male eldership. So now is the time to look at it. But beyond that, regardless of either of you or those, if you don't get anything else from the, the time today, please don't miss how highly God sees women, how valuable they are to the church, and how much we need them. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, because without it, I'd just be up here spouting opinions. Lord, help us to submit to your word when we find it hard. Help us to live as people of the book. In Jesus' name, amen.